This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Last time, in a nutshell, we'd looked at the paralyzed man who was carried by his friends on a mat. I'll read you the story again in a moment. But the, the, the whole kind of thrust of last time was that we're all broken and vulnerable, although it may not be as obvious as somebody who's paralyzed, that we're all uh, broken and vulnerable, broken by life, broken by sin, and we need someone to carry us. And we all, at one time or other, need someone to carry us, to bring us to Jesus. And, and how that moment of coming to Jesus where the guy comes through the roof is like that vulnerable moment where you just say, look, if you really knew me, this is what I'm like. And that moment of riskiness, what's going to happen? If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, I said that you, you have to be willing to take off your mask and say, this is me. This is based on relationship, and relationship takes time. So I've... I meet in a, I've got two actually, two little groups of three that I meet with, and just over time we've gradually just got honest, got real, got our mask off, started to support each other and love each other, and um, if you're part of God first and you're not in one of those threes, then speak to your, your G1C leader and say, look, I'm, in a, I'm not in a three, can you help, whatever. That's not a way of saying, you because know, it's in our society you don't do this, I haven't got any friends. It's just a way we want to facilitate you in. So that's what I spoke about last time. And I said, look, I want to pick up the story and draw some other lessons out of this story. So let me read it all again. Mark 2. um, If you've got a Bible, you can follow. If not, I'll do my best to read it. Mark 2, verse 1. It says, Jesus again entered Capernaum. The people heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came to him, bringing a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking and said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But, so, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. The man got up, took up his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, We've never seen anything like this. Father, we just pray as we look at this story of this man's interaction with you as he lies at your feet and you kind of deal with him full of love and grace, but you deal with him. Lord, I do pray, Lord, that we would come and find ourselves there. 
we'd find ourselves at your feet, whatever our feelings about that might be. And I pray that we'd learn and hear your voice speaking over us, forgiveness. Amen. I want to speak this morning about forgiveness. It's almost the flip side of if you've been open and you've hurt someone or someone's hurt you, uh, then forgiveness is the flip side of it. And, it, and it's, it's forgiveness is in, in two directions. Uh, Jesus said it this way, in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind, and your neighbours yourself. So when I talk about forgiveness, I'm talking about both those directions. The directions, not where we need to forgive God, but where God forgives us, us and then we forgive others. So that's what I, I want to talk about. And it's interesting, I think, that this early church meeting, as it were, in Mark 2, where the they people arrive, and I, mentioned, I alluded to this last week, the, last time, that they, they, they encounter a wall of backs. I think it's an interesting metaphor. They come, the room's full, we don't know how many fit in the house, but it's certainly full and they're spilling out into the streets. And the people that need Jesus encounter a wall of backs. And I would say, just in passing, that that sometimes, that image, that metaphor, that wall of backs, can be kind of the, the image or metaphor for what it's like to try and get into church. Um, that people think, you know, no one speaks to me, uh, they're not friendly, whatever. Now, we've got an advantage because we're tiny that we can be very friendly. But what needs to happen is that, that, that friendliness and welcomeness and openness needs to characterize church anyway. It's never to be a wall of backs because what happens is uh, most unbelievers don't think, fine, I'm going to come up, dig through the roof and find Jesus. What they say is, suck it, I'm not going there again. No one spoke to me. And so what I want to say this morning is that, that, that actually a church community, a community of faith needs to be characterized not by a wall of backs, not by kind of turned in, we've got no space for you, we've got no time for you, there's no place for you with Jesus, but actually to be characterized by forgiveness. That when people come, they think people are warm and welcoming, but not just they're warm and welcoming and we've got nice cookies, but actually we're warm and welcoming and we come to Jesus and he forgives us and we get healed. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Okay. So the, it's interesting, so the paralyzed man lies at the feet of Jesus, and what Jesus says is interesting. If you know this story, you're probably not surprised by it, but if you don't know this story, you think what he says is probably quite surprising. He says, when Jesus, Mark records, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, dot, 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 what do you expect him to say? You'd expect him to say, I can see you're paralyzed, I am the healer, let's go, you're healed. And he does that with lots of people. Sometimes it's a blind man comes to him and he says, what can I do for you? And you think, Jesus, are you being awkward? Are you deliberately being obtuse? Do you not know what's obvious? And you see this paralyzed man comes to him and Jesus doesn't ask him what, what he can do for him. It seems self-evident. He's been had to be lowered through the roof on a mat. It seems self-evident. This man is broken. Physically broken, just in the way that we're all broken. But Jesus doesn't say, you're healed. Arise, take up your mat and walk. He doesn't say that first. The first thing he says is, son, which I love that, son. And, but, you know, it wasn't like Jesus saying son because he didn't know their name. All right, son. You know, what he's saying is, he's saying there's a sense of relationship and connection. I want you to pick up that. So Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And, but you, could, you can probably hear the man saying, I, why is he doing that? He's just humiliating me. He's just picking me out. Why is he picking me out? Why is he picking me? Is it because I'm disabled? 
Now, some of the Jews, Jewish people there would have thought, actually, this man is disabled because of sin in his own life or sin in his family's life. Jesus isn't saying that. I remember an England manager got sacked for doing that, saying that. Do you remember? Glenn Hoddle said that. Some years back said, oh, people are crippled and stuff because of their sin. But Jesus isn't saying that. He's not saying, I'm picking you out because you're bad and everyone else here is good. All these kind of conference junkies that are pushing into the house with their Bibles open, hearing Jesus, they're all good and you're bad. He's not saying that. He's addressing the man's main problem. He's addressing the human problem. And we don't use that word, but what the Bible calls the human problem, sin. There's a book that's been written by Alan Mann. I quoted him last week. I as I say, I don't really like a lot of what he's written. But he, he wrote a, sin, a book called uh, The Gospel or The Good News for a Sinless Society. People don't do sin anymore. I remember on Alpha Course, you know, we're going to do that this week. We're going to look at why did Jesus die. And you talk about sin. And this lady just said to me, quite honest, well, we don't do sin. And what she meant was, I don't have a grid for sin. I don't have a grid. I might have a grid for shame or for wrongdoing or feeling hurt or whatever. But I don't have a grid for that relationship that God calls sin. I don't do that. And when you talk about sin, people think that you've got this, you're bleak and pessimistic, that you're a finger pointer. Some, some types of churches are bigger on sin than others. But whether the church talks about sin or not, sin is a human problem. We cannot call it sin. We can call it brokenness vulnerability, emptiness, but the bottom line is we've got this uh, thing called sin, and we can think sin's about rules and guilt and finger pointing, but actually I want you to tell you that sin is about hope. If you bring sin to Jesus, that is a moment of hope. You've been told a lie if you think, if you come close to Jesus, that actually your sin is going to be a bad thing. The fact is, if you come close to Jesus looking for healing, sin is is actually a chance for you to be changed. One of the New Testament writers says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. You deceive yourself and the truth is in you. When you admit... Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am broken. I am damaged. I do hurt people. I am selfish. I do trust in other things rather than God. That, when you admit that, that's the first kind of, yes, something can be done. It's like these men, don't they? They say these, the thing about men is they don't like to go to the doctors. They have a pain or whatever, and their wives say, would you go, you need to go to the doctors. And we, we were like that. We're all like that. We're sin. Oh, no, no, I know there's something wrong. I know my life's not quite as it should be, but... But I don't, want to go, I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't want to go to the healer. I don't want to go to Jesus with my sin. The, the Ten Commandments describe sin as, you shall have no other gods before me. And that can sound like God's got a real problem, doesn't it? It can sound like God is really insecure, that God is, is like demanding of our allegiance. It's like the, you know, the insecure sixth foreman says, thou shalt fancy no other blokes but me. You know, as if like there's an insecurity about God. But it's not saying that. It, I, I see that as this is a warning about the suicidal folly of chasing after other things. Bad things or good things and making them ultimate things. Because God is saying, I am the ultimate thing. Not because he's insecure, because it's true. Because he is the source of life. John, uh, Jesus put it like this, you shall love God with all your being. John's Gospel says, in Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of mankind. What he's saying is actually, if you want to find death, 
There's a lot of multiple options around that may not advertise themselves like that, but ultimately that's where they'll go. They'll end up with emptiness and brokenness and frustration and anger. They will not satisfy you. Jesus, when he's uh, saying he's center yourself on me, uh, love me with all your heart, or love God with all your heart. He's saying, this is the source of life. This is where we should go. Tim Keller is a new, new, uh, pastor of a New York church, church, great writer, says this. Uh, sin is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your identity, your significance, your purpose, your happiness, your life than God. Another writer called Simon uh, Vale puts it like this. All sins are attempting to fill the voids because we cannot stand the God-shaped hole inside of us. We try stuffing it with all sorts of things that only God may fill. So when Jesus speaks to this man, he's saying, this is your fundamental problem. Now the man's thinking, time out. Let's discuss this. They don't do that, but let's just assume he's doing that. What he's thinking is this, and you would be thinking the same. Don't judge the guy, you'd be thinking the same. You'd be thinking, if only I could walk, my life would be complete. If only I could walk, I would never be unhappy again. If only I could walk, I'd never complain, never be self-focused. If only I could walk, everything will be all right. You can imagine a paralyzed person saying that, can't you? You can nod with me at this point. Yeah? Now, if you can walk in this place, do you ever complain? Are you ever unhappy? Are you ever self-focused? Is walking the fundamental thing that's going to make it right for you? No, it isn't. Now, but if you're a paralyzed person, you think it is. But actually, we all have our if-onlys we all have our if-onlys that's going to make it all right. For this man, it's if only I could walk. For you, fill in the dots. If only. When Jesus says, your sons, son, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, if I heal your body, and that is on Jesus' to-do list, if I heal your body, and that's all I'll do, you, may, you will feel unhappy again you might have a few months a year of euphoria that won't last but the roots of human discontent go deep once his legs are healed he'll find there's another if only Uh, Cynthia Heimold she's Jewish uh, lives in New York secular writer if you google her name she's written some books with very funny titles which I wouldn't want to mention here and she writes for Cosmopolitan don't read that Uh, or the New York Times. Maybe you could read that. But this is what she said about celebrities, this point of if only. She says, I pity celebrities. I really do. Um, Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. More than any of us, though, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. And then she writes, the morning after each of them became famous. You know, you get this. uh, uh, Dave Bish mentioned it last week, didn't he? You know, the X Factor. 16-year-olds. You know, this is my chance. This is my chance of all my life is going to be different. You know, as if it's... And this is the one thing. If I win the X Factor, suddenly my life's going to be wonderful and fine. Yeah? And that's the kind of narrative, isn't it? It's the gospel of the X Factor. If you get on X Factor, if you are chosen, 
your life will be complete. And she, so she writes this, the morning after each of them becomes famous, she writes humorously, they want to take an overdose, overdose because the giant thing that they were striving for, the fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their life bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened and nothing has changed. She writes, they are still them. Disillusionment turns them, she writes, unstable, angry, manic, and I love this phrase, and howlingly insufferable. (laughs) Think, oh, if only I could have this fame. And when they get there, it's just not quite what it is. It may not take immediately, it may not be the next morning they get it, but the point is made. And then she adds this interesting comment. She's not a Christian. She just says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. I remember saying in Manchester at the church that we led there, if God had answered all my prayers, we'd be in a right mess. And, and, and Tim Keller, he, he picks this up and he says, the thing is, with fame or with whatever you put in your if only, if you've, ma- you've made that wish your saviour, and then this is really interesting, you might not agree, but I think, yes, this is us. He says, if you never get it, you know, that relationship, that job breakthrough, that comfy life, that healing, that transformation, if you never get it, it says, if you never get it, then you're angry, unhappy, and empty. And we all say, yeah, I'd like to win the lottery because I do feel angry and happy and empty. But then he goes on and says, but if you do get it, you feel, ultimately feel more angry more unhappy, more empty. I was listening to an Alpha talk um, on the sort of live stream, a guy called Charlie Mackesy, who was an, art, uh, was an artist, quite well-to-do, posh guy. One of his best friends uh, uh, spent all his time at school working incredibly hard to get to university and went to a really good university and then got a job in the city and then worked really, really hard in his job in the city, climbing the ladder of the kind of financial markets as well. And then he, he remember he went on holiday with Charlie Mackesy, who was an artist, so, you know, different worlds as it were but he went on holiday with Charlie Mackesy and said um, I wish somebody had told me when you get to the top of the ladder there's nothing there and sin is about this wanting to climb the ladder to find there's nothing there and we'll let rest the ladder on any wall around but Jesus any wall but Jesus but what happens is, this guy is at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus, as it were, the ladder has literally been kicked away, and he's laying at the floor, he's, he's at the bottom rung of the ladder, as it were, he's, he's on the floor, he's got nothing to go for him, and Jesus says, you son, your sins are forgiven. He deals with his greatest, deepest need. If, if we wish for something else other than Jesus, and his love and faithfulness and his forgiveness, then we're, it's, it's a false saviour. And we'll just feel empty and unangry and unhappy. But when you come to Jesus, whatever you think you need, he knows his deepest, our deepest wish is to be reconciled with him. Son. Son. Read this prodigal son. It's a great story. It's a story of a father that w- greets a son who's went looking, climbing every other ladder, comes to Jesus, comes to his father. Now, this comment, forgive sins, creates some 
uh, angst amongst the people. Let's move it on. Verse 6, if you're in the Bible, it says, Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow... I don't know why the NIV translates it, Why does this fellow... Obviously, all the NIV translators went to schools a lot posher than mine. But, you know, why does this fellow... Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right, aren't they? Tick. Well done. No one can sort you out. No one can fill the gap. No one can be what you really ultimately need apart from God alone. Correct. But what they think is Jesus is stepping way out of his pay grade here. Way out of his pay grade. He's not just some healer. He's claiming to be God. And C.S. Lewis in a quote says this. It says, one part of this claim, is again, this is mentioned in the Alpha Course. It says, one part of the claim tends to pass us unnoticed. This claim, I forgive your sins. Tends to pass us unnoticed because we've heard it so often we no longer see what it amounts to. And C.S. Lewis says, I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really preposterous to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offences against himself. You tread on my toes, I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what should we make, he says, of a man himself, unrobbed and untrodden on, who announces that he forgives you for treading on other man's toes and stealing other men's money? Well, this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the people who their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all these offences. This only makes sense if he is God, whose word is broken and love is wounded by every sin. The leaders know he's claiming to be God and they are not happy. Jesus responds with a question. And, and Jesus kind of does this brilliantly. Thing. They ask, they're thinking something, he asks them a question. They ask him a question. He asks them a question. His question's brilliant. Immediately, Jesus knew what their question was. He knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easy? It's a great question. Answer it in your mind. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take him out and walk? Which is easier? Turn to your neighbor and say, which is easier? So the question is, which is easier to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat and walk? answers who thinks it's easier to say take up your mat and walk keep your hand up if you've ever prayed for somebody who's not had their uh, who's been paralyzed on the mat and they've walked i do believe that god can heal people who are paralyzed on mats but it doesn't happen very often does it? it's pretty hard yeah not that we have to make it happen but you know i'm not trying to rob your faith i'm just trying to see the moment of the challenge so if i was a fake spiritual leader don't use the term, and I'm certainly not fake. I could say to Mark, or I, I could ask somebody, has anybody got some sickness? And I could say, right, Dodzy, you've got your sickness, whatever. I'd say, Dodzy, your sins are forgiven. That, that would be easy, wouldn't it? Because we can't really tell, can we? You can't really tell. If, 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 if Dodzy had come in in a wheelchair, and I'd say, Dodzy, walk, you'd think, wow, that's amazing. But to say your sins are forgiven seems a lot easier, doesn't it? If you're a spiritual fake, it seems much easier to say that. So forgiveness and sin are both hidden. You don't really know. So how do you know what a person's like? They have a little lie. That's hidden. No one knows. Lustful thought. No one knows. Crude joke. Maybe somebody people. Subtle prejudice. It's that leak. Moment of laziness or selfishness. Yeah, you can start to see it. Fit of temper. There it is. 
you know, a cutting word, a moment of gossip. You can, you can see those, can't you? So sin starts hidden, but eventually works its way to the surface. Sooner or later, if you're uh, me-centered, God-rejecting, embracing the if-onlys apart from God, sooner or later this stuff's going to surface, going to pollute you, infect you, and destroy everything you touch. And forgiveness is like that. At first you can't see it. When forgiveness comes, at first you can't see it. Sometimes there might be a hug or there might be tears, but, but, but genuine forgiveness doesn't need to have hugs and tears. You can have hugs and tears and not be genuinely forgiven. You could be doing that and think, well, I'll just take the heat off myself. But, but, but forgiveness is like that. It starts, on the, it starts hidden. It's first hidden. It's a hope. It's a belief. It's a desire. It's a decision. I'm going to trust God. But what happens is, those that are forgiven, it starts to spread. It starts to rise to the surface. You start to see love and acceptance, joy and life, light and wholeness. Everything it touches... Everything a person touches is different. So although you can't see it, you can see the consequences. So in one sense, it seems easy to forgive sins. But actually, Jesus, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You've no idea how hard it is going to be to forgive sins. Forgiving things can be really hard. Forgiving someone who's hurt you can be really hard. For God to forgive sins is not easy. It's costly. It's really costly. Forgiveness is never easy, and it certainly isn't cost-free. Tim Keller again says this, When we're seriously wronged, we have this indelible sense that the wrongdoers have incurred a debt that must be dealt with. You know, someone drives their car into your wall, you know, knocks your garden wall down, your insurance won't cover it, you find out that they're uninsured. Well, what's going to happen? You're either going to get sue them in the courts to get the money, or you're going to pay for it yourself. But somebody's got to deal with it. You can't just say, doesn't matter. Somebody's got to fix the wall, even if you think, I'm not angry about it. Forgiveness and unforgiveness are not about anger. There's actually some kind of debt. So he says, that the, the, in an indelible sense, that the wrongdoers have incurred a debt that must be dealt with. And sometimes when people crash into us, it's not like we can see the wall fall down. But if you're sitting here and you've never been hurt or you've never been sinned against, I don't know what planet you've lived on, but it's not this one. It carries on. Once you've been wronged and you realize that there is a debt that that simply cannot be dismissed, there's only one of two things to do. What the answer? What are the two things you can do? Turn to your neighbor. If you've been wronged, there's only two things you can do. What are they? It's rather obvious. Two options. Option one, forgive. Yeah, we always go there first, don't we? I know you do. I know you do. Option two, get even. They are going to pay. I am going to get even. Okay, right. So if you choose, let's work at the options. If you choose not to forgive, what's the first thing that happens? If, if somebody hurts you, the first thing you ha- that happen is you step out of relationship. I am not going to talk to you. Yeah? If you're in relationship, married relationship, and that keeps happening, people do. I step out of there. I am not going to talk to you. I'm not going to interact with you. We're not going to cuddle. We're not going to be intimate. There's going to be distance. We'll talk about families next time I'm up, about how that all kind of works out. You can break off the relationship, and you can seek to punish the other person. Now, you know your strategies. 
If you're in a, a, a normal relationship, you, you know what strategies you use. I'm not speaking to you. I'm not cooking your food. Well, I don't know what strategies you use, but I am going to punish you. And sometimes it's more subtle than that. But actually, whatever the nature of the relationship, whether it's just normal relationships, what you can do, if somebody hurts you, you can passively or actively wish for retaliation. Some kind of pain in their life that equals to the pain in your life. They've done this, you've done this. Jesus says, someone pokes you in the eye and blinds you, you want to poke them in the eye and blind them. Isn't he? It's a natural thing, isn't it? That's what we, we want to do. I want to give them equal pain. They have humiliated me and shamed me. I would like to humiliate and shame you. And in fact, when I see you squirming, I feel good. However, if you make... Think about this word wish. We've used it before. If you make that wish, I wish to see them squirm. If you make that wish, then you're choosing revenge or vengeance to be what? If only they would squirm, my pain would go away. You're choosing revenge and vengeance to be your saviour. That's what we said earlier, isn't it? But remember what Tim Keller said. If you make a wish, if you had made a wish that this will be your saviour, and you never quite get it. They never really suffer like you want them. Then you're angry and unhappy and empty. But when they suffer, when you see them squirm, when they're humiliated, when, they, when you get vengeance, then what does he say? When you get it, you ultimately feel more angry, more unhappy, more empty. Now let's get it right. Withdrawing from relationship might be a good choice. If you've been hurt, withdrawing from relationship might be a good choice because staying and suffering is not the same as forgiveness. It's just not. And sometimes we can think that that, that, that's the the answer, but it's not. Sometimes we just need to get out. If we've been hurt and hurt and hurt and hurt. But, but you can still forgive and get out. I'm not suggesting we all walk out in our difficult relationships. You know, my wife burns the toast, it's over. You know, it's not saying that. I, know she, I act like it is, and I need repentance about those issues. But, but yeah, we're not saying that. We're talking about, you know, if you're in a, a, in a manipulative, abusive, sexually damaging, emotionally damaging, physically damaging relationship, and the person never, ever changes you are allowed to go but the trouble is that if you go and you think I'm going to punish I'm going to give them you know revenge I want them down I'd like to see their life crushed and battered then in the end you will not find freedom you might be out of the relationship but you won't find freedom unforgiveness imprisons you in a world of distrust and bitterness and pain If you're hurt by someone in authority, guess what your attitude to authority is? There's two responses. Two responses. What do you do? You hate everyone in authority, that person that hate you, but that one, that one, that one, that one, anyone in authority. If a man hurts you, women, what happens? You hate men. And the other thing is, what? this is the most tragic thing. You know, 
seriously, abused people become abusers. They become abusers. They try to, having been a victim, they try to be an authority and work out and medicate their pain by abusing someone else. It's a prison you cannot get out of. You know, revenge has not proved a great way at healing deep hurts, has it? You know, you go to the streets of Northern Ireland, they're doing well. But I remember going to Northern Ireland, a guy drives me around and says, look, this, wall, this bit here, that's Protestant, see that big wall? There, this is the Catholics. You go to the Gaza Strip and there's Palestinians in poverty on this side of a wall and on the other side of a wall that Israel is living in relative luxury. Throwing bombs at each other has not provided a great way for revenge. You, why does Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet have such poignancy? Because Montagues and Capulets killing each other has never, ever brought healing. If you choose the way of revenge, evil does not disappear. Evil increases. It increases in you and it increases in others. I don't know who said it, but, but one writer said, bitterness is like, you might know it actually, you might be able to finish it off. Bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping that your enemy dies. And if you've been hurt, you've been tempted to drink that poison. If you want to make revenge your saviour, if you want to make getting even your saviour, then your, your saviour will not heal your pain. You just become more angry, more unhappy, more empty, more bitter, imprisoned and tortured in a cell that will never release you until you forgive. Let me just say a couple more things about what um, forgiveness is not. Forgiveness does not mean that evil is, is not evil. One of the things that really frustrates me on the radio is people say, well, if you're a Christian, why are you... Do you know that? Tolerance. So-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so has done this and this and this and this horrible, horrible, horrible thing, but you're a Christian. Why are you mad about it? They're not understanding what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not, I'm not mad about it. If somebody comes and abuses my kids, I am mad about it. If someone sleeps with my wife, I'm mad about it. It's not we say, well, we're all loving, it doesn't matter. That's not what forgiveness is about. You get, you know, the difference is when we say, I, I'm, I'm mad, therefore I want to get even. That's where unforgiveness is not there. It's not tolerance. Gentle Jesus, we don't, as if gentle Jesus has no moral compass. Just do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. Jesus loves you anyway. Doesn't matter. Jesus, that's not the Jesus in the Bible. Evil that destroys, he's after it. Forgiveness is not simply accepting or tolerating or condoning or excusing. It's not just putting up with evil to protect your reputation. Forgiveness doesn't mean evil is not evil. Forgiveness does not mean that forgetting it never happens. Now it's interesting on this one. I just want to help you. Because you've got a passage in your mind if you've been a Christian which says what? God does not remember our sins anymore. Yeah? So let's just work that one. What does that mean? Jesus is on the cross. They're nailing him to the cross. He says about those nailing to the cross, the, the best prayer of forgiveness ever. What's he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, if that means Jesus forgets that, that means he's forgotten the cross. 
He doesn't say, it never happened. Jesus was never nailed to the cross. He was never mocked and abused and whipped. He was never happened. What forgetting means he does not treat you. He does not treat you on the basis of your sin. It doesn't mean he doesn't remember it. He chooses not to remember it because he chooses to deal with you on a different basis. It's not like, So when people say, forgive and forget, if you can forgive, then slowly it will subside below the surface and you won't have it front and centre. But you want to... You'd want forgiveness to bring acceptance. I don't treat you because as how you've done that, but I'm not forgetting. It's not because I'm not forgetting because I want to get even. I'm not forgetting because you carry. If you forgive, you carry the debt yourself. Forgiveness doesn't mean it never happened. Lastly, forgiveness is not just trusting. One writer says, trust is lost quickly and gained slowly. It's lost quickly and gained slowly. So though God, forgiveness means that God doesn't treat you as your sins deserve, those around you have hurt will take time for trust to build. You know, if, if you've got an uncle that's abused your kids, you're not going to say, right, come and be the babysitter, are you? But it doesn't mean you can't forgive. You know, let's not give the former robber the job of counting the Sunday offering. But, you know, forgiveness is choosing to bear the debt yourself. It's, it's about saying, I give up the right to be judge and jury and executioner. I trust my justice to who? Trust my justice to God. I trust my justice to God. You give up the right to say, I make them pay back. You give up the right to say, uh, you know, I want to hurt them back. You can, when you say, I forgive you, what you're saying is, I forgive you, you owe me nothing. But true forgiveness goes further than that moment. If you, if you haven't forgiven someone, you struggle to see them differently. So if you've ever been hurt by someone, then what you start to see, you start to see only bad in them. You start to see only bad in people. I know as a church leader that people have maybe been hurt by me and start, and what happens is they start to see only bad in me. And they really have struggled to forgive because what happens is if you start to see only bad in a person, what you're doing is you're saying, actually, I want to dehumanize you so actually I can really justify giving you another kick. And you haven't let it go. Forgiveness has not fully taken root. Forgiveness is full and real when you know what's happened and you understand what's happened and you feel the pain of what's happened, but you say, I forgive you, I owe you nothing and you want the best for them. You want the best for them. Jesus says this and he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you've got to that level of forgiveness, you know you're walking with Jesus. You know you're walking with a great forgiver. Let me read a story. It's long and then I'm done. Corrie ten Boom. You may have heard this story before from me or elsewhere. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Jew, and she was imprisoned in World War II in the uh, Ravensbrück concentration camp. And this kind of illustrates, hopefully, what I'm saying, and then we'll finish it off. She says it was 1947, two years after the war, for those who don't know their history. I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany. 
It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement as I finished. I'd just spoken on the message that God forgives. It was a truth they most needed to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favourite mental picture, maybe because Holland is near the sea, the sea's never far from my mind. And I said, it's like when sins, it's like where sins are thrown. When we confess our sins to God, he casts them in the deepest ocean and they're gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never any questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence and in silence they left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, one moment I saw the overcoat and brown hat the next, a blue uniform and a visored, a visored cap with skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me. Sharp ribs beneath parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. This man was a guard at Ravensbrook. Now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, that all our sins are in the bottom of the sea. And she writes, And I, who'd spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocket rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he? I was one prisoner among a thousand women. But I did remember him with his leather crop swinging from his belt. And it was the first time I'd become face-to-face with one of my captors. My blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time went on, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me the cruel things I did there. But I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And as I stood there, she says, I whose sins had every day needed to be forgiven. But I couldn't. Betsy had died in that place. How could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for their asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. But yeah, I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives stirs in us to forgive others and those that sins against us. Jesus says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you theirs. I knew it was not only a command from God, but a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I'd started a home for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of my heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. 
I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But Father, you need to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into one outstretched out to me. And as I did so, an incredible thing took place. A current, she said, started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. Then the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former SS guard and the former prisoner. And then she writes tellingly, I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. How could Corrie Ten Bloom forgive? How could she forgive? So I sat in my study this morning and thought, how do I finish this? I thought actually, how could she stretch out her hand and forgive? But I thought, she's a disciple of Jesus. He's the one who stretched out his hands on the cross to forgive. She could forgive because Jesus absorbed the debt of that man's and her suicidal sin. He received the wages due to us. The wages of putting our hope in those false saviors. Jesus faced angry men to end our anger. He was emptied and poured out to end our emptiness. When Jesus asked the question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your mat and walk. Jesus went through suffering and pain and death to bear the burden of all the things that you have done against him and against others. And amazingly, releasingly, to bear the pain of everything ever done to you. So we're going to break bread now and time's almost going. But but I thought, you know, what do you do when you become a Christian? What do you do when you learn to forgive? You, it's almost as if you stretch out your hand. Not like Corrie ten Boom. You stretch your hand out like the concentration camp guard. Yeah, you may not have had the visible physical things that he'd done but you've got a a whole concentration camp of lust and brokenness and desire and you've got dirty hands and you stretch them out to the one who should in all reason not forgive you stretch them out to Jesus and he reaches out to you and says you're forgiven you're forgiven I forgive you with all my heart and what happens then is love and healing and transformation flows. And we get out and get up and get to live life not crippled and broken but free. This characteristic called forgiveness needs to mark the Christian community. It needs to mark the Christian community. So I want you to do two things. I want you to as we break bread, I want you to recognize like Corrie ten Boom that you need your sins forgiven every day. I look at Corrie ten Boom and think, lovely lady. 
Why did she need her sins forgiven? But she'd lived, like all of us, far from God. But also, you can come, if you've had hurt and pain, you can come and you can break bread and you can say, that person who hurt me, it's not like they, they it's not that the, you'll forget, but you can say, I forgive. As you eat the bread and drink the wine, you can say, I forgive. You can come out of bitterness and pain and hurting, maybe for the first time. And you can put aside your if-onlys and you can hold on to the one true saviour who truly... For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.